Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown. I am the editor at Guns on Pegs and the head of inspiration at Scribehound. Once again, I'm joined by Chris Horn. Uh, Chris, congratulations are in order. There's been a new addition to the Horn clan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and following the last episode, the whole sort of plan from that between the episodes has gone gone to plan. So particularly pleased. Uh, yeah, uh, little little Freddie joined us at the uh, right at the end of August. So the house is um, very calm, relaxed. Everyone's sleeping well. So we're all good. <laughs> How are you adapting to having two? Uh, yeah, should we move on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, the other big news, Chris, is that um, our other baby has arrived. It, it has, it has. The lesser important baby arrived on the 13th of September, didn't it? It did. So Scribehound is now up and running. We've published, what is it, uh, about 20 odd articles now out of the 30 for the first month. Yeah, so the the daily reads are firing out and it's really enjoyable. There's, there's some really great stuff in there. Actually, and and our guest today, who I'll get to in a second, has had his daily read go out, and it's had a lot of reads. So we're we're good. Um, it's just really fun to launch a quite innovative product. It's like taking all the things that we thought weren't working so well, and then doing them differently. And yeah, that's what you and I enjoy, isn't it, George? It is. And, and of course, while all that dramatic stuff was going on, I was on holiday. You did, and he actually laid back horizontally. I hear. Well, once or twice, yes, but you know, um, beach holidays with small children is never wildly relaxing. But I did get a bit <laughs> of a tan. I did some swimming in the sea and watched a chap catching sardines off the end of the off the end of the rock. So that was nice. I assume they were sardines. Did he get jealous? <laughs> I did a bit. I did get a bit jealous. Um, but I was fascinated by his technique. He had a sort of like a twenty foot pole, very bendy, no reel, and just a sort of bit of line off the end and a float with some sort of bait underneath and he'd just stand there sort of twitching it gently and then every now and again he you'd see him strike at something and he'd either come up with nothing or this tiny little wiggling silver thing um and i reckon he stood there for about four hours one day and he'd 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 successfully strike one in five maybe but he probably got he probably had a decent haul by the end of it you know he was striking every minute or so um really it looked like a sounds very, like it's been nice doing yeah, he's very skillful. Very skillful, I think. If you're doing it for years, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really, really nice. Really nice. Um, and nice to be able to just go away and be reasonably confident that the whole thing would just work. <laughs> it, it did work as well, just. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're good. There was, it's like, it was one of those duck moments to launch a Scribehound. Calm on the top, loads of paddling <laughs> underwater. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway. Right, our guest today is Head of Operations at Holtz Auctioneers, the fine auctioneers based up in Norfolk, where he lives, uh, run by a good friend of ours, Nick Holt. Um, he's also English Open side-by-side champion for 2023, I've got written down here, but I'm, I think he's about to tell us that there's a number of other years before that where he was always also champion. Um, he's a specialist game shooting coach, a massive vintage gun enthusiast, uh, as we mentioned, he's also a scribehander, one of the, the 30 best that you can subscribe to. A shooting writer, thinker, opinion haver, which is what we're excited to have him here for. So a huge warm welcome to Simon Reinhold. 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you with us. Uh, yeah, no, hol- holder of unpopular opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how many? Uh, how many champ- How many times champion are you then of these side by side competitions? So the there is there are several competitions that happen throughout the year, um, and the English Open is one of the CPSA's uh, big events. It's one of their majors. Um, the British Open is another, and obviously the World Championships were here this year as well. Alongside that, the British Side by Side Championships takes place, and it's run by Atkin, Grant, and Lang, uh, and took place uh, I think last weekend. So there are, and there's actually a, there's a Welsh Side by Side Championship coming up at Dovey Valley as well, uh, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make that sadly. Um, so there are many different events, but um, previous years I've entered the the British Side by Side Championships um, with a small bore and won that class on, on more than one occasion. Um, came third with a 16 ball overall in that once. Um, so, uh, but this was my first sort of step up to bigger competitions where you get 12, 1500 entries. Um, it's where oh, wow. Yeah, wow. those guys play. Yeah. So, uh, it was, yeah, it is one of the CPSA's major, to- major championships, one of their three blue ribbon events. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a good day. Actually, I felt pretty good the night before I slept pretty well and, no neck pain that day, so no excuses. Let's go. Let's do it. And it was at Ariswell Lodge, which isn't too far away from me. So I toodled down mm. there on the Wednesday. Um, had a, I, I like to turn up to these events not knowing who's going to be in my squad, meeting new people. It's, it's part of the fun I have. I, I'm not one of those that can only shoot with four different people. Otherwise, my uh, confidence you know, plummets. I need that crutch. I don't. I like to go and just you know, see who's in my squad, meet a whole different bunch of people, um, who are all relatively surprised that you turn up to one of these gigs with a 120-year-old hammer with <laughs> hammer gun with bits sticking out the top end rather than bits sticking out the front end. So, um, yeah, and shot 101 out of 120 on my round and then got called back for a shoot-off because I wasn't the only one with a side-by-side who shot 101 out of 120. Uh, a very nice bloke from Suffolk called Francis Pierce also uh, shot the same score. Um, and that was... We both shot six targets behind George Digweed with side-by-sides, so... I think we oh. could feel pretty pleased with that. Wow. Um, and I managed. And it's very yeah. on brand that you were using a hammer gun. <laughs> Bought out of the sealed bid auction at Holtz Auctioneers, yes. Really? How much did you pay for it? <laughs> uh, it cost me 350 quid. Nice. But I love that's, it. That's, that's the best bit. <laughs> yeah. 350 I mean, quid. Be- <laughs> did it have much mixed. gaffer tape on it? Um. It's got a chip out of the stock. It's sleeved. It's you know, it's got quite a lot of weight throughout the barrels. But I quite like that for clay shooting. I don't want a whippy gun for that. Um, so it's a bit of a wreck. And the way I've shot it, it's even more of a wreck now. Um, I've had to take a light rubber mallet to get the cross pin back in um, before last weekend, um, and I've had to glue the forend finial back on because that popped off. But it just it wasn't built for what I do to it. To be honest with you. Uh, but it's still a solid gun, um, and I, I very much enjoy shooting it. It may well be retired at the end of this year because I'm restoring something else that may take its place. So we'll see. Nice, very good. Yeah, but it was yeah, it was a fun. It was a fun gig. I think we might. I think the first time we ever met might have been in one of these side by side competitions. I think like it was about yeah. about. 13 years ago. <laughs> and I think it was at Sporting Targets in Bedfordshire. Was it? There. It, I, it was well, I was trying to work out. When it was, it was originally, and we had a drink on one of the picnic tables outside the back of the clubhouse. I can remember it. Yeah. 
We we took. We was a bit of a gun. Actually, I think we sponsored it. Guns on Peg sponsored it. Yes, you did. Because um, you provided a, a day's driven grouse shooting as part of the prize. Sugar, we and, did. And John and Lee a won. Very, very nice bloke called John Lee won it. And I saw John yeah. at the English at the British Open. I forgot. Oh, what a lad! He shot, yeah. Goodness, he me. shot brilliantly that day. He really did, and he's such a nice guy. So it was great. So would you have won the grouse there had we sponsored it again with the same thing? You would have done. Uh, I'm better than I used to be. So we'll see. Go on, put that price up next time. You'll see what happens. <laughs> I think I think it increased the entries that year slightly. It's quite a nice price. Oh, oh yes, it did. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I know. I'd enter. Yeah, it wasn't a whole grouse day. It was one peg joining us. Yeah, we took exactly. we took a couple of others, and uh, yeah. and it was with a team of others that we knew. But uh, yeah, it was it was just great fun. And it I was, was just watching John shoot like that at that time. He he definitely had gaffer tape all over that gun. He had he, he had a raised yeah. raised comb on the stock with a bit of. Like bit of a uh, bit of his sofa. Uh, well, he's a big guy. Know, I mean, he's he's six through. foot what four. Um, so yeah, anything is yeah. going to be too. Anything built, you know, before nineteen sixty is going to be too short for him. Just by dint of how we were not that big back then, for, a, a, for the most part. But um, yeah, no, John uh, John's son is shooting very well these days as well. So yeah. Oh wow! So that's a change because. I mean, I must have met his son at the time, and he definitely wasn't sort of at the age where you'd be shooting really well. So, he... yeah, no, he's he's coming on <laughs> under good stewardship. But anyway, yeah, so that was that was the first time we met that side by side championship at Sporting Targets. Very good, George. Your favourite part? Go. <laughs> it is well. So Simon, the way we like to kick things off and to really set the tone is uh, to bring along a drink um, just to help. Uh, the conversation flow a little bit yeah so i'm going to ask you simon what's that you're drinking what is that i'm about to drink because there isn't any in my glass yet i i thought long and hard about this one um and i've listened to a few other podcasts and what people have chosen and i haven't gone for the supermarket lager i'm sorry to say i'm sorry to let you all down <laughs> it's getting uh, far too much airtime the supermarket lager but yes <laughs> i have stepped back to the kitsch 1970s and 80s uh, this is a drink that this is the very first drink I had on a shoot day. This is my connection with shooting. And I will never forget the taste because I was about 14 and you get handed a small glass of something at the beginning of the day. And yeah. it is De Kuiper Cherry Brandy Liqueur. Wow. <laughs> that is what was handed to me. And I, it, look, this, it looks like it might have been that bottle as well. <laughs> Uh, no, this one is one I've been sampling as I uh, realized I was going to have to do this. And I was just thinking, what does this, I don't remember what this tastes like, but oh yes, I do. Oh yes, I do. Um, and it's a very evocative taste <laughs> for me, this one, because I used to go beating with my dad. I spent a year beating on his syndicate. I spent a year cleaning his gun. I spent a year, you know, handling the dog and all of those things. And then I was allowed one cartridge in grandpa's old German 16 bore. Uh, on the last drive of the day. And I couldn't have been more excited about this. And it was always at this small syndicate that dad was in at Little Dunham Lodge um, in Norfolk. And I was you know, slightly taken aback with you know, the one cartridge. I said, why can't I have two? And dad, to this day, this is one of his best pieces of advice to me. He said, if you get it right with the first barrel, you won't need the second. <laughs> and I went, that focuses the mind. <laughs> anyway, so lots, does, lots happened on this shoot at Little Dunham. It was run by a marvellous old soldier called, uh, what was his name? Brigadier Peter Barclay. Uh, very big hunting family from Norfolk. Um, that sort of 1980s syndicate where the rules of health and safety didn't really feature, if you know what I mean. Um, 
Yep. <laughs> there was no accident book, let's put it that way. Um, mm. Anyway, Brigadier <laughs> Barclay was very keen for this young lad, um, scrawny little 14-year-old that I was, uh, to shoot his first pheasant. Uh, and eventually I managed to just, you know, clobber a hen pheasant in the arse as it fluttered down behind me. And, you know, he was very excited for me. And as I came back to, to sort of, a, the, well, call it a gun bus, it was a trailer with some straw bales on it, he decided that you know, the tradition of blooding this young man should take place. So he got hold of this hen pheasant and he put the head up to my face and he, I remember, I shot this thing in the ass. There was no blood on its head whatsoever. And he pulled this thing down each of my cheek and the beak dug in and the only blood on my face was my own. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, this is a fairly extraordinary initiation to this game, but um, you know, I'll roll with it because you know you slap on the fixed grin and just get through the moment. Um, but he was he was a lovely old boy and a very brave soldier. There were stories of him uh, in the war having, I think he was, I think he lost his trousers as his grenade went off and carried on fighting in his pants um, to go on and win an MC. I mean, he was that might have been apocryphal, I don't know, but he was a wonderful old boy. Used to drive around in a in a. Uh, series 2a Land Rover with a horse rifle holster on the outside of it hanging on the wing mirror where his 1905 Woodward sidelock would sit getting gloriously <laughs> spattered in mud just in case you know he'd drive to the next drive and see a squirrel out the window he could whip out the gun and shoot it it was that uh, kind of gig it was great amazing. fun absolutely brilliant fun uh, as you turned up, you were handed a glass of something sticky. Yeah, and this is it. This is what I was given. <laughs> I feel like any shoot where um, where the, where it's run by a brigadier is going to be a, a memorable sort of a shoot, isn't it? Yeah, he was no ordinary brigadier. The rules of normality didn't quite apply. It was one of those one of those sporting soldiers and countrymen and and farmers who spent his whole time hunting, shooting, and fishing, uh, and just in the eighties. Those rules didn't apply. It was great fun. I mean, you could you could get away with so much uh, that you can't do now. You know, I could drive the Land Rover at the age of fourteen, and everybody would have a heart attack these days. You know, it would be that sort of gig. So, uh, yeah, here's to here's to Peter Barclay. Lovely, huh. good man. Very good drink. I like it. George, what have you got? Well, so I, I mentioned that um, I've been away on holiday, and of course, it is traditional when you go abroad to bring back some of the local tipple. From, from Duty Free. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this isn't from Duty Free. Um, so it's not whiskey. Now, uh, Malaga isn't particularly well known as a, a drinks producing area, but they do produce something called... Uh, hang on. <laughs> Drum it's roll. called Malaga Virgen, uh, or Malaga Virgin, um, <laughs> which is basic. It's basically sherry. It's basically a Pedro Jimenez sherry, and it's very nice. It sort of tastes a bit like... Do you remember getting little boxes of sun-kissed raisins when you were a kid? It sort of tastes exactly like those did, but with a bit of a kick. And it's very nice stuff. I'm not going to drink an awful lot of it, because I imagine if you have too much, it give you a hell of a headache. <laughs> but um, I might foist some on one or two people on shoot days this year. <laughs> I feel like my drink is going to give me that in a minute. I haven't even had a sip yet. Well, go on then, tell us. So uh, a few episodes back, and I can't remember how it happened, but a few episodes back, somehow Gin and Debonne got mentioned in the early part uh, when referencing the Queen in some way. It was the Queen Mother's favourite drink, I think, wasn't it? 
It was it was the Queen Mother's, not the Queen, wasn't I think, it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was yeah. I was googling it to check this, and everyone just mentions the Queen, and maybe the Queen followed suit. Followed. I, yeah. It may have been her. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, I was standing at the game fair, and a member of the Most Noble Order of the Garters called Henry Young. Uh, that wasn't his name when he got read out in the pod. But anyway, he came up to me and he said, uh, following that conversation about gin and de bonnet, here's a bottle of de bonnet. And I was like, <laughs> do I say, do I, great, do I say thank you? Or do, or do I say something else? <laughs> so I have poured myself gin and de bonnet, which is apparently one part gin, two parts de bonnet, a little bit of lemon, a slice of lemon on the side. And apparently the Queen Mother used to have this before lunch every day, which is very civilised. Uh, and I've, I'm not a massive martini fan I, I don't know if you can call this a martini but i suppose it is uh and uh so i've never had a, a sip of this and i'm gonna have one now you look a bit scared oh my god that's amazing <laughs> is it i honestly <laughs> thought i was about to throw up <laughs> um that how is that so good honestly oh, i'm gonna have to go away and try this now uh, I was okay so that's I when I poured it I was like this is fire water Dubonnet is like 15% or something and mm. gin straight gin right you cannot mm. taste the gin it's all super smooth wowzers wow. wow. is it chilled it's not, no, it's it's not, not stirred, stirred over ice like a, like uh, a proper martini it it, uh, it probably should be mine isn't <laughs> oh, fair enough <laughs> <laughs> so Dubonnet sales are going through the roof then that shocked me I've never had a sip of that until that point I, I do you know what a couple of blocks of ice in there would be perfect um, I'll be off my rocker in a minute, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Henry for giving me that actually now. Yeah. I appreciate that. Top two. There's a, a distinctly 80s vibe <laughs> to our drinks today, just completely by chance. I like it. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> cherry brandy, sherry and a gin and bonnet. It was There's a happy no time in the 80s. It was a happier time. <laughs> Who says shooting doesn't move with the times? <laughs> <laughs> right. I will pause Cindy Lauper on the other screen and we will crack on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, so um, Chris, there was something before we move on to the the listener correspondence. There, I think there was something that you wanted to to bring up. Oh, I just thought, like you know, the last episode we did with uh, a fellow mutual friend of ours, Johnny Carter, Simon. I don't know if you've yeah, had a chance to, to listen to it. Oh, you have. have okay. Yeah. Well, great, great. I'm going to need your input in a second. Um, I've had a lot of correspondence off the back of this. Uh, we have. Uh, I've had a lot of personal messages as well. And I just thought it was worth touching back to a couple, the couple of the key points that came out in the discussion at the end about the price of shooting. And the price mm. of shooting is giving everyone a lot of, a lot of, you know, angst. It's it's painful in a number of different ways. Uh, and a few people might have misunderstood a couple of the points, or might just be particularly angry about it, like we are too. You know, price getting out of control. I just wanted to summarise a couple of those key points, make sure we're all on the same page about this, because. I don't want people to be misunderstood about it, but also to be like really clear about where we stand on this and 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 okay. some of the things that are going to be affecting us going forward. I think the first thing to point out is like you know, a few messages from a couple of keepers getting really concerned about you know our opinions on the future of shooting and where we're going to take it. And I just wanted to highlight George and I and you, Simon. We're all employed mm. in the shooting world. You know, we are essentially gamekeepers when it comes to this as well. We're all on the same side. I think what we were mm. highlighting is some of our plans for like what we think is really important to the future of shooting and to maintain it for our children, not just for the next five years. Yeah. We talked a lot about the price going up and the impacts that can have. And quite rightly, people have pointed out, well, if the price goes up, obviously that's going to cause issues on the shoot, you know, to keep it going. They've got to do what they can to keep the price down. And some people were saying, well, that involves cutting a few corners. And that's the point at which I have issue. Mm. Um and as a result, 
this really awkward and difficult time is going to cause problems in shooting. We cannot cut corners. We have to accept that there is a time and a play and a point on certain shoots where if you cut too many corners, we cannot defend what that shoot does. And so no. what we were going on to say is this traffic light system, which the GWCT are working on, which looks at net biodiversity gain, is kind of the be all and end all. If the shoot can't add, add value to the environment, then we can't stand up for it. A few others were pointing about pointing out about, well, does that mean that Guns on Pegs doesn't look after the big shoots on the website and so on? It's got nothing to do with bag size. First and foremost, the GWCT Exmoor study shows that actually some really big shoots can have a really positive impact on the environment. It's got nothing to do with bag size. It's got everything to do with the practices on the ground that the keepers and the management of that shoot take. And so that's what we're focusing on. So I want to make that absolutely clear. In the long run, where we hope to get to is that shoots that detract from the environment, we won't have on the website. That's where we hope to get to. Now, we don't know who they are. No one really knows. You have to properly do a sort of scientific visit at the moment to establish this. Mm. Uh, and so we want to get to that point. So I just wanted to make that clear because I don't want anyone being confused about where we stand on this. We're all on the same side of the fence. We are all looking forward to the future of shooting. And that's what yeah. we think is the best path to take. Yeah. I mean, it's not about big shoots or small shoots. It's about good shoots and bad shoots. Yeah. I think that's the... I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, we should be able to be proud of what we do. And if you can't be proud of what you do when you're asked or in public or in front of somebody who doesn't understand the sport and explain why you're proud of what you do, then you've got some questions to ask yourself, to be honest. And that's where I come down on it, is you should be yeah. able to justify what you're doing. And if you can't, go away, have a look at what you're doing and work out why. Yeah. But also on the other side of this there is a, a buying power to be factored into this. I think people have a duty of care where they buy their shooting and what they are buying into. And you shouldn't just turn up, shoot X number of birds, spin on your heel and, and wander off home. You should examine where the birds are going. You should, you should get a feel for how the guys who are running the shoot are behaving, how they're operating, how they're looking after birds. If you can see them slinging pheasants into the bottom of a truck covered in mud and dog shit, you know they're not looking after those birds. If they're stringing yeah. them properly, yeah. hanging them up, and there's proper due care and attention, you know it's a well-run shoot. There's little indicators yeah. that you can take just from yeah. being there. And and in, in lots of other forms of life, price is highly linked to quality. Mm. The thing with shooting is it's not always the same because some places just have they're able to offer a lower price because of a bunch of factors on that shoot yeah. that allow them to do that. And... I saw a message from someone this week going, I've been offered a day here at £40. I've, I've already got one booked in at this this chap here for £50. And this guy is offering it for 60 I can't understand why on earth this is getting ridiculous. And I'm thinking, yeah, what a, it's just a basic question. It's, but there's absolutely zero context to that question. The chap yeah. at 60 might might actually it, it just be worth every penny of it. And it comes back to the yeah. point we we're making about value. And it's really hard to tell on the face of it. But to you know, just looking at it on the price is like an awful way of looking at it. It is, yeah. Um, no, it's not. It's not the way to buy. You should, you should go on the overall feel of of where you are shooting because there's so much more to it than here's my cash. Give me some dead fe or pheasants over me or partridges over me and two dead ones at the end of it. And hopefully they are offering and guns are taking game at the end of the day because that's a big thing for me to be honest with you. If you're not learning how to cook, if you're not learning how to prepare these birds for the table, 
that you're given at the end of the day, then you've really got to examine why you're doing it as well, because it's a whole part of what we do. Absolutely. It's it's the it's the main reason, really. Like if you look far enough back at any rate. Um and if we lose sight of that, then then we're in big trouble. Exactly. Good. All right. Well I think we're done on that. George, should we miss anything? No, here endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but please keep the correspondence coming, because on that there was a lot of people who, you know, not sort of podcast reading out correspondence, but we love hearing the feedback because it's really important. Well, speaking of correspondence, Simon, what we like to do is we like to ask our listeners to send in uh, their uh, shooting quandaries and queries mm. for a, a section called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? Uh, and this episode, episode's Whose Bird Is It Anyway? question comes from somebody who emailed pod at Guns on Pegs, who I have decided to call Havelock, who has written... <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's a, a change from your usual Greek references. <laughs> well we'll get to it at the end but honestly dropping in a havelock okay carry on (laughs) Um, right havelock writes gentlemen i wonder if you and your multitude of listeners can help me with something of a quandary our little diy shoot is a happy band of idiots who do our best to share the workload and keep our birds in tip-top condition We've run the days pretty much the same way for many years, and as the season drew to a close last year, there were some grumblings and mutterings in the rank that the drives were a little lacking in the bird department, and the bags were a little low. This is always disappointing to hear, especially having survived the problems of COVID and avian flu from the previous years. Having fallen asleep at a previous AGM and being woken with the good news that I was now club secretary, (laughs) it fell to me this year to try to improve our fortunes. As with all small club shoots, funds are limited and manpower is erratic at best, so we had the man from Basque come and walk the shoot and give us some ideas for changes, which we've implemented for the coming season. At the same time, we also ran an anonymous survey with the guns to try and divine what they really wanted. I'm now faced with two dilemmas and would appreciate your thoughts. Dilemma one. How long should I expect the shoot captain and the beaters to stick to the new regime as we iron out the inevitable early wrinkles before reverting to type? Dilemma two, the survey results showed strongly that the guns wanted A, more birds, B, bigger bags, C, fewer work days, <laughs> D, fewer feeding duties. <laughs> However, the shoot returns showed that the guns achieved 303 birds for 1,609 shots, or 5.3 shots per bird. How do I break it to the guns that A and B might require them to do some practice at the playground, and for C and D, where might I find some self-rearing birds? <laughs> Many thanks in advance for your thoughts. <laughs> So you've got a bunch of guns who want to have their cake and eat it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> wow. I'm assuming that I'm assuming with these war birds, bigger bads, less work days, less feeding duties, that they also want to pay the same price. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, um, uh, mm. This is a this is a proper dilemma. I mean, does it have an answer? It's it's got to be time for some tough love, surely, and a little bit yeah. of. Gentlemen, this is the way it is, okay? Uh, and if really uh, at five to one on a on an average game shoot, you really want to be improving a little bit. I mean, that's not great. That really isn't great. So uh, they could do a little better in their department, which is accuracy. And yeah, I mean, if if the shoot is run on a on a guns turn up for for work parties. Um, then, yeah, you're going to have to break out the big stick and start whipping people in, I think. Although, of course, what they could do is offer... I've, I've come across this um, maybe even through a dilemma or something like that, where there is a sort of fine for missing a work party. Mm. 
So you could you have the same number of work parties, but a hefty fine for those who don't turn up. Yeah, absolutely. And then the the proceeds of said fine go towards either I don't know paying a part time keeper or buying him more birds. But I think the part time keeper is a preferable choice. Um. The first thing I would say to him, and I really hope he hasn't, is declared the results of this survey. Because what he could do is manipulate what the guns said to suit his favour and argument <laughs> and just just lie and basically say, so you'll be pleased to hear that all of you thought that this was a fantastic idea and then declare his own idea. Uh, <laughs> and then basically everyone would be looking at him going like, gosh, everyone else thought differently to me. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. And, and then and then well, no, the I, whole... I would actually I, I would change that to say all bar one of you thought yes. this was a fantastic idea. That's, sorry, and that's what I meant. Yeah. Thinking, oh Christ, everyone's against me. I'm the only one who thought this is a bad idea. <laughs> and all of them will be thinking it. And no one will pipe up because of that exact exactly. thing, because they think they're exactly. on their own. And and so in regard to his dilemma one question, where he said, how long do I stick to this? Well, that gives you free reign to stick to it for as long as you like, because everyone's on board. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's what I think you should do. Yeah, he could fudge it. He could fudge it. Yeah. I, mean, I, I would like to commend them for getting the Basque man out. I think that was a very good first step. Yes, absolutely. And I also like the idea of, you know, the man from Basque, like the man from Del Monte. I like to imagine that he turned up in a... Embroidered shuffle as opposed to a white linen suit. Yeah, that one, yes. (laughs) The the man from Basque, the chap that goes down every sheet in the country. Um, It's good, yeah, it's a good shout doing that. Um, I'm sure that's helped. But, uh, I don't know, people don't like change at the end of the day. By and large, people don't like change. So you've got to pitch it as something else. Never say the word change. We are improving the shoot this year. We are doing some drives in a better way than we were before, uh, rather than just changing them. Uh, So I think then that buys you a little bit more time. Uh, Yeah, 5.3 though, as you say, we don't know. He didn't explain exactly where this was, but I'm with you, Simon. That... Unless you're in like the mountains of Wales, five point three. Yeah, that's upon. that's not great. You you really ought to be doing better than that. Bear in mind that three to one is thirty three percent. Put it in clay shooting terms, you are bottom of C class, the very bottom. <laughs> that's not great. Room for improvement. Mm. And there's plenty of people out there who can help you. <laughs> so you need to incentivize both work parties and shooting lessons. So perhaps a free shooting lesson for everyone who turns up on a <laughs> on a work party day. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's going to increase the footfall on the work party. So that's the thing is everyone goes, really? I need a shooting lesson? How dare you? Yeah. Come, to, come to work and be told your shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really tricky. But I really hope that he does put in some change because then at the same time, if if it doesn't really work, well, you know, that will teach them for asking for it to be different. Yeah. I mean, if if you don't like it, come up with a better idea. If, you know, we're doing this change. If you have objections, come to me with a better idea. Don't just say you don't like it. Come with an answer, not another problem. More birds, less uh, bigger bags, less work days. Could they do like a sealed bid for your place on the syndicate and no one knows how much each person's paid? That's and then, an option, that, yeah. This, this doesn't work. I'm <laughs> just getting carried away. It, it assumes there's competition for places, of course. Uh, no, but I'm trying to get more money out. I'm trying to get more money out of them without them realising to put more birds down. But mm. No, it's tricky. Yeah. Because, I mean, if they're, if they're all friends, then you can freely tell them what you're trying to do and expect their support, hopefully. If they're not, if they're acquaintances, 
then they should be feel they should feel free to shop and shoot elsewhere, perhaps if they don't mm. like the direction it's going. I think this is where the term "rock and a hard place" comes from. Hmm. Well, I mean, he's he's obviously been volunteered into running the thing, which meant that everybody else went. He's asleep. He'll do it. Yeah, at the AGM. So it's... nobody else wanted to take up the reins. So you know, they could have they could have stuck their hand up and said they'd uh, they'd be the yeah, and, uh, and having secretary or having been involved with many wildfowling clubs, um, it's very easy for ninety five, ninety eight percent of the club members to take one pace back. And then the poor soddy wasn't concentrating; he's left out yeah. in front. So, uh, but yeah. no, lots of club chairmen, lots of club secretaries, and treasurers work really, really hard, doing a very difficult job, to be honest with you. And you're never going to keep everybody happy all of the time. It's just not possible. <laughs> oh dear! I feel like we've not offered as much advice as we could on this one because this is really hard. I imagine loads of syndicates are in this point in this position, though. Yeah, and especially the- no. well, I, I, I think, I think the tough love. It's tough love. That's what it's needed. Yeah, mm. your job is to shoot better, and we're trying to do this. Um, support me or walk. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Another idea. If they are at 5.3 to 1, I, I, it's not possible on every shoot, but change the flushing point so this is lower and these birds come down a bit lower. Just give them, like, you know... Confidence boosters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's actually... That's, I mean, that is an interesting perspective, which is maybe you're starting with the highest birds. First thing in the morning, everyone's still a bit rusty, bleary-eyed and creaky. Mm. You could change the order of the drives and you know give them a bit of a warm-up. And you're on something here because loads of syndicates do it their way and they've done it that way since 68 yeah. and they'll never change the order of the drives. Yeah. Whereas what commercial shooting has taught us is you need a really good drive just before lunch and you need a yeah. nice drive at the end of the day. That's how commercial Everyone, shoots work. <laughs> everybody goes home smiling, everybody breaks at half-time smiling. Exactly. Uh, and so yeah. change the order, keep them on their toes and make them happy at the right times because I'll bet the syndicate has always done it that way. Good. Great. Well, I think that's actually useful advice against all probability. Um, so good. So we're back on the forgotten drives now, but this one's a bit of an odd one because it's sort of a forgotten drive, whose bird is it anyway hybrid. So I've decided to call it whose shoot is it anyway. And it comes from somebody I've decided to call Romulus, you'll be pleased to hear. It says, I grew up in Kent where we had a small family and friends shoot on our farm, putting a few birds down along with several wild birds. I fondly recall one drive home run where I shot my first partridge and woodcock as a child. I can visualise them as if it was yesterday, the birds always flying high above the wood, darting over the waiting guns. As a father now, I've always wanted my son to experience this drive and hopefully down his first live quarry. However, since I moved away to North Yorkshire and my father retired from from shooting, the shoot has ceased. My elder brother, who now runs the family farm, does not shoot or have a great interest in shooting. I've tried to persuade him to continue the shoot as we enjoyed in my younger years, offering to cover the costs and even arrange the whole thing. He's adamant that there will be no shooting apart from pest control with no real explanation as to why not. What more can I do to persuade him to allow myself to set up the shoot again, to allow my son to experience what I have such fond memories of and recall numerous stories to him? I think Romulus is, uh, is Harry... Prince of Wales and his <laughs> married Meghan Markle. <laughs> He's been told absolutely under no uncertain terms you're having the shoot back and he won't give any any reason as to why. That's the only thing I can suggest here. Interesting. That's, interesting. that's tricky. I mean, it is, 
That's family politics, <laughs> yeah, and that's, it's, that's not great. It's strange, isn't it, that there's one brother who's who obviously loves it and one brother who, if anything, it seems like he actively dislikes it. Well, clearly the shooting brother must, must have poached many a bird off younger brother in his early teens, and that is, this is now, yeah, chickens coming home to roost. No, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's, how do you persuade the non-shooting brother that this might be a good thing, unless you appeal to his uh, his avuncular instinct, you know, try and let the nephew, you know, go through the same, have the same opportunities to pl- play the family card. I don't know. This can be simply summarised as how did you get someone excited about shooting that isn't? Mm. Uh, and there's got to be loads of things you can do. But it feels to me like that's, it feels to me there's more at play here and he needs to ask a lot more questions. Yeah, it does, because if you, if you don't know what... If you don't know why your brother is not allowing you to shoot, then how are any of the rest of us going to be, you know, able to help? Because you're going to know him better than anyone. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I could say is, brother's a farmer. Uh, You could appeal to his wallet. That's not (laughs) one. Pay him some rent for the sporting rights. Yeah, monetize it perhaps. Feels a bit vulgar. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, his options are to essentially try and offer him something to lease the shoot off him. Uh, that sounds like the last resort. Uh, it feels like, I mean, the fact he's adamant with no real explanation is of great concern. However, mm. if you found out all of your sort of uh, shared mates that shoot and you took him on a decent away day, as he's a brother, uh, and you had a really great fun time with all your mates and you, and you did you did a sort of what we've talked about on a pod before last or whenever when you do the the, the massive back to back to back over a sunday with the sunday off uh the you do that and then you basically come back from that and i challenge anyone who has an inkling in shooting to go to that sort of thing with a group of mates and come back and go that's nah, not for me <laughs> uh, so <Yeah>. i think <laughs> you might go for it that's a great plan you'll need a neutral party who they yeah. both know very well and get on with yeah. very well to play the linchpin. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's got and, to, and, he's got and, to get there on that away away day. And and that guy seek that organizes it at the request of Romulus, who sort of goes, yeah. by the way, here's some money for me and my brother. Uh organize corrals all the other mates into it, organizes a good away trip. That that that'd be fun anyway. Yeah. If he comes back from get- that and then goes, look, I just don't want the shoot at home, then you've got to say, look, mate, what's wrong? You know, you might want to get sister-in-law, if sister-in-law exists, involved as well. So she's having a great time and can lean on him in the future. Very good plan. Yes, if there is a sister-in-law, all other halves need to be there because yeah. then the truth will come out over dinner. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll be the most almighty row. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be, and there'll be you know, six guns on the day the next day and all his mates will have a whale of a time. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Well, that was quite straightforward, surprisingly. Um, so, Chris, uh, do we have an unpopular opinion for this episode? Yeah, just before we go on, because I'm going to lose track. Uh, Havelock and Romulus? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Havelock, um, he is a, a our, our correspondent was an unwilling leader. Oh. And Havelock Veterinari is the uh, the ruler of a city on the Discworld who <laughs> doesn't really want to be leader, but uh, does so because he thinks if anybody else did it, it would be absolutely dreadful. So that's that one. And Romulus um, lost to uh, his brother to as ruler of Rome. Remus. 
Remus, correct. Mm. So this isn't this isn't really what's in your glass, is it? This is what's on your bookshelf. This is what we're playing now. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's George's opportunity to puff his chest out. I there we it. go. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't really an unpopular opinion, but um, I do suppose it will be unpopular with some. It comes from Casanova. On the 19th of August this year, I was very fortunate to marry my lovely wife, Anna. We didn't get married until 1,500 hours, uh, so I decided to use my morning wisely by walking up some grouse on a nearby moor in North Yorkshire. Lovely. It was a beautiful day. The fresh air and blooming purple heather created a calming paradise which put my pre-wedding nerves at ease. I arrived on the moor early with my best man, the keeper and the shoot owner, who were very keen for me to shoot at least a brace of grouse on the morning of my big day. I was very pleased to bag a brace and a half in quick succession. Having achieved my objective, I was off the moor by 9.30 with plenty of time to get ready for the service. I've got an issue with this bit. Uh, The wedding was magical and not all overshadowed by my achievements, even though it was the topic of many conversations throughout the day. My wife and I enjoyed a romantic dinner of roast grouse before departing for our honeymoon a few days later. (laughs) Wowzers, he's done brave there. Uh, I know this doesn't fit your usual listener correspondence categories, but I'm very keen to spread word of my story, not only for my fast-growing ego, but also to inspire other sportsmen and women to make their wedding days extra special. Maybe this can inspire a whole new trend or even lead to something much better, such as a first pre-wedding McNabb. Wow. I mean, a pre-wedding McNabb would take some doing. I mean, you'd definitely just miss the whole wedding, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd be out there, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have the grouse and you'd have the stag and then you'd be like, sod the wedding, I'm waiting for the salmon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Uh... Get the priest down to the river. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who, who chooses to get married in the middle of the shooting season anyway? I mean, I know August is right at the beginning of the shooting season, but really, if you're in grouse country, you got married in the middle of the shooting season. George, what's wrong with you? I did. I got married. Um, I, in fact, I in fact went shooting the day before I got married. <laughs> See, this, this, so I'm on this guy's side. This is the way to do it. I, I was at okay. I was at a wedding wedding of uh, my best man on Saturday, and we shot, or he kindly took us all shooting on Friday on a partridge shoot in Oxfordshire, and it was amazing. Like the atmosphere the day before the wedding is something else like it just because obviously it's all been quite pressured from his point of view everyone's there everyone's excited then you will get this sort of relaxed day before it's just so cool um okay i can see that actually yeah the thing that concerns me about this one is like so he's up there first thing off the moor by 9 30 that all sounds a little bit rushed and a bit less fun than if he'd done it the day before that's my only observation yeah yeah you know you've got to savor the moment you got to save the moment, but I happen to think that about McNabs as well. That you touched on it is that you've got to savor the time you spend in pursuit of what you are pursuing, and rushing from one to the next to the next in the hope of a selfie at the end of it. I don't know whether that sits with me, to be honest with you, because that's me holding an unpopular opinion right there, leading off from this unpopular opinion. <laughs> we don't. It shouldn't be the supermarket sweep of Fit Hill Sports. <laughs> Yeah, you want to be able to take your time, you know, particularly I think with the stag, you don't want to be just sort of, right, that's it, and into the Argocat cat and gone mm, exactly. uh, while somebody else brings it down off the hill. Exactly. You want, to, you want to be able to take your time over that, don't yeah. you? Yeah, because I mean, certainly for me, 
we've wandered off slightly off your unpopular opinion question, but this is also an unpopular opinion. For me, it's the anticipation of the shot and the the work done after it and the meal to come is the bits are the bits that I savor the most. The shot itself is over so fast. And if you've done everything right, it should be a fairly straightforward exercise if you've got close enough for us, you know, on a stag. Um, I'm not really in the business of shooting stuff 300 yards away, to be honest with you. I like to get closer. That's why they call it stalking and not sniping. Um, so, yeah, that those parts of the pursuit are the longest living and the most enjoyable, in my opinion. And and therefore you'd be rushing it mm. and that's just not a good idea because you're going to ruin no. both. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, so I think his his latter suggestion of this sort of pre-ready McNabb is pretty ballsy. I, I'm not I'm not a massive fan of that. Um, if it was me, for sure, like I just think it would be rushed. But I, I, I do think getting out in the morning before the shoot sounds pretty pretty fun. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, but yeah, if I had well, preference, yeah. day before, I, I would go with that. Yeah. That being said, if you if you do manage to do a pre-wedding McNabb absolutely 100% right in terms of that <laughs> I do want to hear that story <laughs> um, I do want to hear that story I'm not going to lie it's a new take on hunt the stag before the wedding isn't it <laughs> um I love this so so he goes shooting on the morning of his wedding to the lovely Anna uh he then has the wedding and then makes Anna eat his roast grouse before departing for their honeymoon <laughs> grouse is not you know grouse is quite a it's, quite, it's not not everyone likes grouse especially sort no, of roast it's grouse acquired. it's acquired and mm. uh, i know a lot of girls that um i've sat at dinner with aren't the massive fans actually so i think he's done really well here um well you would hope as he's marrying anna that he knows his audience on that one and has not just taken a punt or, unless he's stamping his authority on day one he's stamping <laughs> Which does not bode well for, you know, future matrimonial happiness. Well, that's what I was wondering, you know, how's it gone since? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So Havelock, Romulus, Casanova, and now you, Simon, are all members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will very soon be in receipt of a set of the much-coveted Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you too have got a shooting confession, quandary, or query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion, or you'd like to tell us about a forgotten drive and you would like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Now, Chris, um, we've just got to quickly mention, I think, the uh, garters shoot day. To the best of my knowledge, it is now fully, uh, fully su- subscribed. But uh, I think we should say to people that if they are keen, we'll start a bit of a wait list in case of... Um, mishaps and people being unable to make it after all yeah that's Uh, probably a good idea because that does happen for for normal reasons um not that you just want someone to come and load for you george but um yes uh (laughs) brimsfield park in gloucestershire on the 20th of october we've got podcast garters shoot day so you have to have a set of the garters um there are lots of you out there that do um 500 pounds a gun uh 10 pegs, but 20 places. So we're going to be sharing for each other. Bring the price down, have more people involved. Um, uh, Obviously, sharing pegs, so therefore loading for one another. Uh, It's on first come, first serve, as we've already said, but as George said, I think it's full. Um, But I expect that we'll have one or two dropouts. Um, And a massive shout out to Ben Hughes, who runs Brimsfield Park. He's been a guest of the pod before, and also Jake Wolf organising, doing a hell of a job. Uh, Really looking forward to it. Not far away now. yeah, 
going to be good. I've got some drinks lined up. I've also got a special set of of uh, Odd Bulls boxer shorts, which we which we've been told to buy. Yeah, I was that was unexpected, but um, well, what we uh, there's going to have to be some sort of group photo which fills me with. Oh dread. God, no, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, Ben uh, had a few health scares earlier in life, and so does collections for Odd Bulls, the charity, on his day's shooting. So, but that's why the message went round saying, "Go on to Odd Bulls and buy your boxer shorts," which was quite an interesting moment. They got a lot of patterns available. Actually, I, at the point that I was choosing, I chose not to buy the England rugby set of boxer shorts because I wasn't feeling very confident. If I was buying them now, I'd feel a little bit better. Anyway, looking forward to it. Pod at gunsonpegs.com if you'd like to come. Yeah, it's going to be a great day. Right then, Simon. So I wanted to ask you, um, you obviously have a, a real passion for gun making and vintage guns. Is that something that, that you've been, uh, that's sort of been something ever since you started shooting or is it something that's developed over time? Where does that all come from? It's... It's developed over time. The passion for shooting, I think, was always there from the very first day I picked up a a stick to start thrashing a bramble bush and seeing if there was a pheasant in it when I was about eight, I think. Um, And I started with Grandpa's Cyberside, which was a have still got um, because I shot all my firsts with it. But it was nothing of any, it was of vintage, but it was nothing of any great quality. It was made by Bayard in Belgium and it was a 16-ball non-ejector. And then I started working in the gun trade first uh, for Bonhams uh, work experience in their gun room under Angus Barnes. And then uh, when I was at university work experience sort of regularly during the holidays for Nick at Holtz. Um, and that really fostered those two experiences really fostered my passion for it. Uh, and I met one or two quite influential people on me during the early formative years when I was about 16, 17, 18, um, Working for Bonhams at the time was a guy called David Winks. I don't know if you ever met David. He was a former barrel maker for Holland and Holland uh, and ended up on the board uh, running the company. Uh, and Winksy was something of a legend in the London trade. He was a, a tall man, six foot tall, hands like badger hands, who had a, <laughs> a, a rough, gruff, aged <laughs> voice. And it was Winksy this, Winksy that. And I was measuring up some barrels on a, on a pair of AYAs number twos I think they were and thinking well these are quite nice guns and I kind of voiced that opinion standing next to David who had no idea who he was I just knew he was consulting for for Bonhams at the time Um, and Winksy just went nah boy nah you don't want him come and have a look at a proper pair of guns and he opened this double flat case and inside was a pair of top lever hammer guns by Stephen Grant in lovely condition we don't we hardly ever see a pair of hammer guns these days so um, there were a few more around back then before they all went to the States. But, and he kind of opened my eyes to the difference between gun making and great gun making. And there is a gulf between the two. Um, and it was from then that I started looking at details and quality of fit and finish and just the little things in gun making that, that scream quality that aren't obvious unless you handle guns a lot and these things have been pointed out by people who built them uh, and i was very lucky to meet you know people like david people like nick people like chris beaumont who i still work with as well um, who pointed these things out uh, and said you know chris handed me a gun yesterday um and said you'll like this that's all he said and he knows me well enough and he had and it was not it's not outstanding it's not it's a 16 ball webley and scott 701 
but really beautifully engraved. Very nice touches. The length of the finial, the inletting on it is perfect. The screw heads are all perfect. The woodwork, the wood to metal fit is perfect. And this is a thing that was built in 1932, I think he said. And it was just really good quality. And it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be outstanding. In fact, the things that really float my boat with vintage guns are usually the things that have been untouched for maybe a century or 60 years in a case, but in a dry case in good storage conditions. So they're not rusted to hell. Um, and you, you sort of get a feeling for these things. And then, you know, Diggory um, and I have had conversations about this and Graham McKinley actually said something to me the other day, which was, he's a dealer up in Scotland. And I shoot most of my game these days with a, a top lever hammer gun by John Dixon. And so one of my favorite makers um, mm. that I was given by a friend um, and it is in unrestored condition. And I was umming and ahhing about what to do with this. And I talked to JP who runs Dixon's and I said, I'd like a, an extension in the horn butt plate. So it will be something like the original because it was originally a, a Buffalo horn butt plate. And he went, that's really hard to check her, but I'll do it for you because it's you, Simon. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was toying with the idea of how far to go. Do I rebrown the barrels? Because I'm looking for a particular sort of gray brown on the barrels that you can only get done by a few people do i refinish the stock so the woodwork under which is beautiful under all these dents and mocks and marks and oil it's still there do i bring it out and i was speaking to graham about it and i showed him the gun and he very quietly said it's only in original condition once and i mm. went that's my mm. answer it is only in the original condition once and if you mess with it you've lost something you've lost something of the allure of what makes that thing special so it's yeah it's it's funny how vintage guns grab you they have a soul where other things do not and you can find it in cars you can find it in food you can find it in wine very very good quality things made with love put in front of people who appreciate what they're looking at you know the clients who buy stuff from us a lot of them understand that you get a piece of walnut some steel and a tube and you weld those two tubes together, you put them on the action, you put the walnut on the back. But if you do it with love and care and attention and 60 years of experience and five different people, all of whom have devoted their lives to doing this to the best of their ability, then you come out with something incredibly special. And that is vintage gun making to me. That is the best of gun making. And it's still taking place in certain pockets, but the old guns are the ones that interest me because they were doing this by gaslight. They don't. They weren't using CAD. They weren't using CNC machining. They were filing everything by hand, by smoke lamp to check fit. They were masters of what they did, and their work is still in use today. So, what have you got? What What haven't you got in your cabinet? No, which way around? Which, which, <laughs> well, which way do I ask this question? Oh, jeez. Um, so my yeah my main my main game gun is a is a Dixon hammer gun from eighteen seventy. Uh, it was the third rebounding lock I think they ever built. And it, that is the one I will reach for most because it is it has huge sentimental value to me. Um, and I've also found the portrait hanging in East Lothian. I haven't seen the portrait yet, but I know it exists. And I am gradually getting closer to the person at East Lothian Council who can give me access to stand in front of the portrait of the man it was made for. Oh, wow. Because they have a beautiful seven foot by five foot portrait of Sir James Gardner Baird, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, on horseback, on a rearing charger, 
looking over his right shoulder back at me uh, in a Napoleonic style. Uh, and that is the guy that gun was made for. So that you know, there's a whole part of the history that is still living in that picture for me. That's, that's um, phenomenal. That's cool, yeah. isn't it? So, so where is this? Is, is this in like council offices? <laughs> this is, it is, well, I, I went to the offices my last trip to Scotland when I was collecting guns and I had a couple of hours spare and I went, sod it, I'm going to Haddington, I'm going to these offices and I'm just going to ask the question. And if you go in with good intentions, you will get good intentions back. And they were all yeah. really lovely. And they said, oh yeah, I think I remember it. It used to be hanging there, but it's not hanging there anymore. The person you want to speak to is X. So I went and saw X and she went, well, the person you want to speak to is probably Y upstairs. So I went to Y upstairs. And she went, well, you probably want to speak to my boss. She's not actually in. She only works here two days a week, but she's back in on Friday. And then for reasons that I won't go into, I could not make the Friday meeting. So next time I'm going to drop her, who's the curate. She is a curator of all of the council's artwork. And she knows where it is. And I'm going to arrange a meeting to stand in front of the picture. With the gun? Yeah, maybe with the gun. I don't know if she'll let me, but... Uh, yeah. I just want to see. I just want to see that picture in the flesh because he sat for that portrait, and I have his gun. So, and it, is, cool. it is. It is some picture, actually. I don't know if I can. Uh, am I going to? Yeah, I might wreck things. I have a copy of it on my phone, but um, I will show you another time. But yeah, so that is one of my main guns. I've still got Grandpa's sixteen bore. Um, I have recently acquired a Theophilus Mercot mouse trap, which is. The very first hammerless, commercially successful hammerless shotgun. It was designed by Theophilus Mercot in London uh, in the late 1860s. Uh, And it's an underlever and it's a lever cocker. So as you push the lever forward, the hammers are cocked back and the barrels fall away. It's a non-ejector. It is a stunning looking action in a very weird shape but it handles beautifully. It's got new barrels on it by William Ford, who was an, he was an exceptional barrel maker, William Ford. He built barrels for some of the best in London um, and specialised in building barrels, but also made very, very fine guns himself. Um, so this is a, a, a Mercut mousetrap with new barrels by William Ford with a nice bit of choke in them, and it's a lovely gun to shoot. Really lovely gun to shoot. How often does a gun come in or under the on the radar of Holtz through sort of a, uh, one of your valuation days or something where where you the owner has absolutely no idea that it's actually worth a lot more than he thinks? Well, it's not. Again, it comes back to worth and value. Yeah, because only someone like you would know some of those things. Or there's obviously yeah. a lot of collectors out there who do, but... Yeah, no, there are very few people who, who can't Google the information these days and find out what their gun is worth. It, the really interesting bits are the provenance, who it was owned yeah, by. Yeah. If you have information to that, it is... Because it, it, you can then get into the story. But you um, don't know the also, engraver and the barrel maker a lot of these guns. Like if you, So with my gun, um, mm. 1895 Henry Atkin, there's no way yeah. I know who, who did various parts of that gun uh and that might make Uh, it a bigger deal than than another one potentially depends on the maker um very some purdies had initials stamped on the barrels boss muzzle loaders had initials stamped on the barrels and those initials are in the records as to who made that gun yeah sure i know if you go to purdy with a serial number they'll give you like you know the whole backstory exactly and you can find out who was the stocker on that uh Occasionally, we had a, an, a pair of guns turn up last year with on the front of the comb, on the nose of the comb, at the you know that ridge that goes down for those that don't know, um, mm. into the the pistol hand, the pistol grip. 
there was a little nubbin on both of the guns, a little flared sort of almost like an oblong at the front of the comb, on the no- right on the nose. And that is a clear sign that it was stocked by one stocker um, called Ebenezer Hands. What a name. And he always marked his work that way. And he was one of the great stockers of his day, and he was allowed to mark his guns that way. So little things like that. And Josh picked them up. Uh, Josh Pover, who works at Holtz and one of the valuers. Um, he had them come into evaluation day, and he went, ah, Ebenezer Hands. And the client went, what? <laughs> went, Those were stocked by a guy called Ebenezer Hands. And it's that level of knowledge that's really, you know, it's quite fun to be able to to say that to somebody when you see yeah. something that stands out like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's not always uh, obvious. Some of it's, some of these gun makers were, were anonymous. A lot of the actions, a lot of the services um, were outworkers being commissioned to do it by gun maker and the gun maker putting their names on the guns. You know, a lot of these guns were, were Birmingham trade guns retailed by others. So right. it's not always possible, but um, there are certainly still stories to be found. That's so cool. It's so cool. It, it is, it, and you're right. It is so much of it must be about the history and the story, and and who is it for, and who is it, who did the work, and that adds that extra element of, I guess, romance to it, and that's why people get obsessed with collecting it. Yeah. I suppose, and it doesn't always go right. And I will give you an indication. Um, he won't mind because um, he's such a nice man um, that he won't mind me telling the story, but. Um, I took a call a couple of years ago uh, from a man with a very familiar Irish accent. And he said, um, I won't try and do the accent, but he said, I, I, I've got this gun that was um, that was used as a prop um, in some of the series that I was doing, and I'd like to sell it and have the, the proceeds go to charity. And I said, am I talking to Dara O'Malley, who played Sergeant Sharp in the Sharp <laughs> series? And he went... You've got that spot on. I said, I'm a big fan. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, the gun he sent over was not of the right period. It was a percussion gun, not a flintlock. So it didn't sit right. And it was very tricky to explain that, you know, somewhere along the line, this prop that had been stored for him for the 20 years or whatever it is since the series ended, somehow had got swapped over and he had been delivered the wrong gun. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. So it wasn't, unfortunately, what he was hoping for, which is a real shame. But he was such a lovely guy. He took it in great spirits. So, But, yeah, so it doesn't always go right. And it's difficult to, to have to let people down sometimes when, when you really can't give them good news. And, and we do that a lot with, with guns that are you know, in really bad condition, barrel-wise, because they can look lovely on the actions and the stocks can be gleaming, but you put a wall gauge on it and it measures down to 12 thou and you haven't got a functional gun. Or it's out of proof, and the client goes, well, what do I do? And we say, well, we have to reproof it, but it's at your own risk, sadly, and sometimes they blow up, or they bulge, yeah. or they become you know, rendered irreparable. They don't often blow up, to be honest with you, but you know, it, proof is there for a reason. So, yeah, it's not always giving great news about, in an antiques roadshow fashion, of how valuable your piece is, because that's not the case sometimes. And as an enthusiast, is it sort of painful on a daily basis working where you do where things come through and you like and you just desperately want everything or have you kind of no, got, no, gone no. beyond that now enthusiasm is different to to you know the the lust for collection it's totally different i mean we just all of us we don't work here for the money uh, it, we work here because we enjoy it we really enjoy the the stuff that comes in you never know what's going to turn up uh, and the craftsmanship you are able to see on a daily basis is, you know, we'll see everything from Chinese war guns from the 1600s 
right up to modern day military stuff. And I'm not into the black plastic things here and there, to be honest with you. And we all have our certain periods that we're enthusiastic about um, and they do differ. Um, but it's it's great to see such a variety of, of things that some of which is, I like to say, is functional art. You know, the, the way these mm. things look is so stunning. And the fact that they're still going, they were designed to last one generation, they've lasted three you know, um, and yeah. they're, they're still going strong, a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And that's testament to how well-made they are. So it's not painful, no. It's never, it's painful giving people, you know, unfortunate news, but it's never, you're, you're always waiting for the one case you open um, where all that history and paperwork for the original owner is still in it and the gun is gorgeous and sleepy and still got all the dust and the oil and the, you know, congealed bits here and there. And you know it's never been messed with. You know it's not been polished for sale. Don't ever polish a gun for sale thinking it's going to get more money. That never happens. It goes the other way. Um, so, yeah, it's just lovely to see the old ones mm. in their original condition. Lovely. Um, so I feel like I could talk about vintage gun, I, although I'm not, as I've said before, not a really a gun that I'm just interested in that whole uh, collecting um, and the, the, the intricacies of it all and the skill. But... Um, I feel like we should probably talk about one or two other things. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we kind of touched upon it earlier on when we were talking about the, the five to one ratio. I remember an article that you wrote and I can't remember where I read it on the golden ratio. Yeah. Um, now uh, I think you were specifically talking about pigeon shooting, um, but maybe can you just summarize that okay. article in a couple of sentences, first of all, and then I'm going to ask my question. Okay. So there is a, a mathematical theory called the golden ratio, which is based on um, the Fibonacci sequence. So the Fibonacci sequence is one plus one equals two, two, and you add the number you get to the number before. One plus one equals two, two plus one equals three, three plus two equals five, five plus three equals eight, and so on and so on ad infinitum. And that curve you get when you plot those bits on a graph goes up towards a ratio that is regarded as proportionally perfect. When you look up, it can be found in art, it can be found in architecture, and it's found all over nature. So the reason the leaves on the stem of a plant grow in a certain ratio is to prevent them blocking the light from, uh, from reaching leaves below them. The ratio they happen to grow in is 1.618 to 1, the golden ratio. If you look at the base of a pine cone, the way they are evenly distributed in a spiral going out, the seeds come out more efficiently when that spiral is 1.618 to 1. And it's found all over nature. And if you apply that mass to the <laughs> statistics of game shooting, if you went on a warped up day and you fired eight cartridges and shot five birds, because five and eight are next to each other, it's yeah. not exactly on the golden ratio, five and, you know, um, eight shots for five birds, but it's on that graph and it goes up towards that ratio and you take it further and further and further, you get some really interesting numbers that apply to really good game shooting. And if you're shooting at 1.618 to 1, the point of it is that you are shooting to a very, very high standard, but you're still missing some because you're still testing your ability. So you're not hitting everything. It's not one-to-one. -one. That's not what we do. 
We're not doing clay shooting where we do want to get one-to-one, even though it's very rarely done on 100 Sporting. It is game shooting. So you want to be pushing the envelope of how difficult it is and you want to test yourself. You don't want to just shoot easy stuff all the time, but you want to shoot really, really well at the same time. And 1.618 to 1, when I've shot well in a pigeon hide, is bang on. It's 62% effectively. 62 out of 100 is weirdly where I always end up on clays, (laughs) in clay clay competitions. Uh, Clay competitions is totally different. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's because I don't care, Simon, and I enjoy that. I (laughs) know. But it's an enjoyable level to shoot at because you don't hit the ball, you don't miss them all and it just keeps you interested and i think there's yes. something in, there's something in that well and it well it, it ties into another very interesting and i think this was a conversation that you were having on a podcast with with our previous guest johnny carter about yeah. flow state and yeah. it and and the, the idea there is that you perform at your best when you're sort of not really thinking about things you're in that kind of zone i suppose and the key to getting into that zone is for something to be just hard enough to keep yes. you interested but not so hard that you get yes. pissed off but not so the, the easy the, that it's not interesting yeah Mihaly Sizent Mihaly who came up with the the concept of the flow state he had seven I think key points I can't remember them all but of of identifying what a flow state looks like first of all the challenge has to be difficult secondly the feedback feedback has to be immediate you have to know whether you are being successful or not and there are a whole load of other things as well to add up to when you are doing something to the best of your ability and you feel like you're almost having an out-of-body experience. You're not even in control of those actions. It's happening without you directly controlling your muscular movements because it's all fluid. Mm. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to get into. <laughs> the Japanese it happens once have a, in a blue moon, doesn't it? It, it does. It really does. Uh, happen, the Japanese have a, a way of looking at it as well. In Japanese archery, it's the mind of no mind. So you're doing something without any conscious control, but you're doing it to a very, very high level. It's subconscious control, not conscious control. It's it doesn't happen in competition clay shooting. It's difficult because competition clay clay shooting is a very specific mindset and set of functional controls that you put in place to get the end result you want, which is as close to 100 out of 100 as you can possibly get. Mm. Whereas game shooting is not about 100 out of 100. And there is more room to relax. And there is more room to allow yourself to get into that state of subconscious control of your actions and the fluid swing, successful shot, and you're hyper-aware of all of the colours and sounds and smells and tastes, but you're only watching it, you're not controlling any of it. And that's how it feels. It's very, very peculiar, and it doesn't happen very often, sadly. And it's supposed to be very, very good for one's mental health to get into that flow state as well, isn't it? It's supposed to be something that we should all be seeking. It's almost meditative, um, and snowboarders feel it when they're, when they're you know sweeping down a mountainside. They get into that kind of state. Rock climbers feel it when they're challenging themselves to to get up a rock face. Um, you can get uh, it a whack a mole at the church fete. I'm sure you can. In you know you can do it. I also wrote an article about how you can do it in your. You can find this on my website. How you can do it in your kitchen, and the article is called "Shoot Like You're Making Tea," because you don't consciously <laughs> control any of the actions you do when you're making tea. You just do it. 
You just go to the fridge. You know exactly how many steps it is from your kettle to your fridge. You know exactly how much pressure you need to apply to that door handle. You know exactly how many revolutions of that cap of milk to take the milk cap off. You know exactly (laughs) how to get your spoonful of sugar from the sugar bowl over to your cup and get it in without any of those grains falling. But if you try to consciously control that movement, sugar would be pissing everywhere because your muscles would tense. (laughs) Absolutely tense. Try it. Try and move a go. Try and move a full bowl, a full spoon of sugar. Actively controlling that movement, you will drop some sugar. Move it without any conscious thought, you won't. So shoot like you're making tea, (laughs) and you can practice getting yourself into that subconscious fluidity movement by doing things. You just have to get the enjoyment out of the process of doing it, not the result you're looking for. That's the point. But it's all sports psychology and yeah, Zen meditation and the stuff that the stuff that I go a bit nerdy over. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, and I can't see how all of this links to this new initiative that I saw on a video the other day with you and and, nah. and Johnny, the uh, yeah. rally rally clays. So this is your rally idea, clays. yes, and it is, and there's nothing Zen and flow about this. I don't think, yes. or maybe there no, is. You're, no, you're wrong. There is. If you can. Control your nerves, control the adrenaline and the cortisol and the lactic acid that's building up in you. If you can relax, you will shoot that competition well. If you tense up and start thinking about beating the other guy, you're going to lose. So it's very, very much to do with Zen. And so, so, what, so go on. What is Rally Clays? So Rally Clays is an idea that's been kicking around my head for several years in that um, the most exciting shooting that we do is probably simulated game shooting. Or if you mm. shoot a flush, um, like you you come along to Holtz Auctioneers and you shoot the flush that we do for our charity event day that Nick puts on, yeah? Mm. I grew up doing small flushes at Chatsworth Country Fair um, where I worked as a steward in my teens and still do now, and my kids are now coming through it as well. And we used to have a Red Sox shoot, that's what we called ourselves, on the Saturday nights, and we'd have teams of four shooting a flush and it would be very fluid, very fun, fast pace, and the high score wins. That is the kind of shooting I really enjoy when it comes to clay shooting. And I was like, how can we get, why are we, Why is clay shooting not watchable, for one? Why is there mm. so little prize money, too? Why is there no sponsorship in it? And why is it actually not that fun for people? And I kind of went back to the first principles. All right, first things to do, if you want to fix those things, you have to make it watchable. How do you do that? You've got to take the focus away from the clay out there and bring it back to the shooter themselves. So rally clays, if I can just summarize how it works, you have two people standing side by side like a squash match, effectively. The scoring is if you miss the clay, you lose the point. The first to three or five points, depending on where you are in the competition, wins the match. You have seven traps out in front of you, like a sport trap layout. And what chap on the right, say, has won the toss, he calls pull. And he has full use of gun, two shots at that target. If he breaks it with the first shot, trap two is fired for his opponent. And he has full use of gun. He breaks it with, let's say he breaks it with the second shot. He's given the other bloke time to reload that barrel and take trap three, which is coming for shooter one early. And he can then put pressure on the other guy because it goes trap one for shooter A, trap two for shooter B, trap three for shooter A, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth up to seven. Then seven is thrown twice to vary the 
you're not shooting the same plays all the way down as well. And then you go back down to one and back up and back down and back up and back down until somebody misses a clay or fumbles their cartridge or doesn't mm. reload in time or can't shoot it on the drop because they missed with their first barrel. And if they miss, they lose the point. And it's very interesting watching. We've now done two competitions uh, and, a, and a proof of concept event to start with. Uh, and we varied and we tweaked it. But it's very interesting watching what pressure does to people. Um, oh, yeah, very, that's the best bit about this, it, isn't it? <laughs> it's, and it's key for me. When, I, when we did the first competition, it was only a, an eight-man competition. Um, and we had two pools of four. Everybody shot against each other in the pool. Top two went through to a knockout stage. Yeah. Josh Brown, who runs, who's the manager at Barbary Shooting School, and is an outstanding shot, one of the best of his generation, got his ass handed to him in the first match. Because it was so alien to, we well, didn't. That's not fair. Uh, it was a very, very close match, and, but he still <laughs> lost. Uh, but his very first match, he lost, and and he couldn't quite work out why. Because, and he turned around, and he said, "This is the wrong gun to use for this. Completely wrong." And you could see it. He went away, and he thought about it, and he thought about how to apply pressure, and how to load fast, and how to shoot this more effectively than his opponent. Because his competitive spirit is like nothing I've seen, and he came back stronger. <laughs> And better, and after losing those matches in the pool stage, I think he may have lost only one. He has never lost a match since. He's been in both competitions, and he's won both competitions because he's worked out how to shoot this. Everybody else is thinking they're getting better as they work, and there are people trying to build sporans that hold cartridges to load fast. And But it's interesting just making it more exciting, more visual, putting it head-to-head, -head, making a scoring system that everybody can understand. It's not play shooting where you shoot 120 targets over 15 stands and then go back to the clubhouse four hours later to find out who won. It's mm. immediate feedback. It's you lost the point, let's get on to the next point. This is now match point. You lost the match. Get out. That's much much more my type of shooting. It's great it's, fun to do. And I knew I had them. Yeah, after the first match of our first uh, event, the first pool match we put on, nobody had really seen it. I'd explained the rules, but not very clearly to them. And they suddenly got it after the first three points. And I turned around and I looked at them all and they were fizzing with excitement. Absolutely fizzing with excitement. They could not wait to shoot it. And I thought, I've got them. Completely got them. And then... I really like this because I think the problem with clay shooting for me, and this might be just me. Oh, clearly it sounds like there's a few others. Um, and the same with golf. When you're posting a score, you're not necessarily posting a score against the person you're playing with. So when you're shooting, you're probably not competing with the person that's shooting after you or just shot before you. Um, no. They might be of totally different standards. And the same with golf. You might be in a foursome and then like there's actually – you're with, you know – someone who's just they're, they're nowhere near you whereas the thing about this is you are competing with that person at that exact point so it's, it's the instant it's, feedback thing and that's what it, you don't get in clay shooting you don't get the feedback until you're sitting with a cup of tea in the clubhouse which is boring and that's why yeah. i like this idea so it, you're, you're absolutely right in that golf and competition clay shooting as it stands your only opponent is your inner self yes your, which is your challenge is the course <laughs> Yeah. But it is you are only competing against yourself. And if you manage to conquer those demons, you will shoot to the best of your ability. And if you are the best on the day, you win. Whereas and this some people are very good at that. And it's fascinating to do psychologically. It's absolutely brilliant to do. It's I really enjoy it. But it's fundamentally boring to watch. Yeah, because you don't know you don't know if they've done that good a job or not. No. You just think you oh, don't. it looks like a good job. 
Yeah, and there's no de- there's no demonstrative emotion coming out of people because a lot of them are bottling that up because they don't they don't want to lose the mental control. Exactly, it's why the Ryder Cup in golf is the best form of golf. It's the best yeah, form of golf going. Yeah. It's actually the one that loads of non-golf watchers watch. And by yes. the way, it's at the end of the month. It comes out straight yes. after this pod. I, I cannot have wait. been watching. Yeah, I have been watching and waiting for it. You're absolutely right. And it is because it is a different scoring system and it's head-to-head. And you yeah. can see where the jeopardy lies. You can see what that putt means. And it's very interesting to watch. You, you mentioned the Ryder Cup. Ian Poulter comes alive in a Ryder Cup. Yeah, he, exactly. The postman, he, he always delivers. Rises, <laughs> oh, God. rises to that challenge. That's a dreadful line, Chris. Please go and have a drink <laughs> That's now. What he, he calls himself the postman in the Ryder Cup. I'm it's, not joking. Oh, okay, so it's up there with the trousers he wears as well. Um, it, he's got he's got the arrogance to deliver the result. That's the problem. Sod it. The, the way that man plays in the Ryder Cup, I will forgive him anything, quite frankly. Exactly, um, yeah. He is, he is match play tasked. I mean, he's just so good at it. Because yeah. he thrives on that atmosphere. He thrives on that competition. He thrives on the cut and thrust, and he doesn't give a damn who he upsets in the process. He's going to bloody yeah. well win. And that's great to watch. That's good telly. That really is. We don't have that in clay shooting, and we should. And if we had it in clay shooting, we would get a watching audience, perhaps. And with that comes other things. So I'm quite passionate about this, um, and it is something that I've wanted to do for some time. Uh, and yeah. everybody who has shot it so far has gone, this is amazing. This is so much fun. I didn't realise clay shooting could be this much fun. And it, a lot of it's the intensity, isn't it? It's the, the fast octane nature. and yeah. yeah. Refer to it as the Ryder Cup for golf when you intro it, because I think loads of people straight on with that. That that, that brings well, the out Ryder, something else. The Ryder Cup the for Ryder, shooting. Yeah, if, that's oh, what I meant. It could, sorry, be yeah. A Ryder, it, yeah. it could be a Ryder Cup. It, you know, that could be where it develops into, an English versus American, you know, team game. Wow. And you could have well, singles yeah. and doubles. Doubles is fiendishly complicated. And you would probably need an electronic control box. Otherwise, the the button pusher would probably have a mental breakdown. But it can be done. Uh, but it is bloody good fun. And it's, that's, that's essentially where you have to start. It has to be an enjoyable experience because that passion and that emotion has to come out of the shooters because that's the bits that should be watchable. Yeah. Um, and it is yeah. fascinating to watch people. And we're working out camera angles. We're working out all kinds of things, Johnny and I. So we are tweaking it, perfecting it, and polishing it in public because there's no, you can't do this on a piece of paper. You can't, a friend of mine, I was talking to this, who's a management consultant in London. He said, look, just don't let perfection be the enemy of actually getting something done. And I went, do you know what, Alex, you're absolutely right. Got to get on with it. Let's just get out there and do it. And if we fail in public, so what? We'll come back. We'll do it again. We'll change some stuff. And we Mm. did. And we had suggestions from the capacitors. It was Charlie Folder's idea to shoot seven target twice. And then the one target twice to mix up the targets you're shooting. I was like, yeah, that's great. Fantastic. But we wouldn't have learned it without Charlie going, how about you try this? Mm, yeah. It's so cool. And um, it makes me think we have uh, quite frequently to the podcast, we have people emailing in saying, yes, your game days are all very well and good uh, for the garter owners and so on. But have you ever thought about doing a charity clay event? And we go, yeah, well, we sort of thought about it, but you know, it doesn't, that sort of thing doesn't necessarily get us excited. But I feel like a Guns on Pegs podcast rally clays day go for it really good absolutely and we i have got the format and the formula for you just to add 16 punters or 32 punters or however you want to do it and you just drop them into the formula everybody pretty everybody thinks oh i don't understand it i don't understand it because it's very difficult to change your mindset if clay shooting as it stands at the moment is all you've known then it's quite 
but once you get into it and go, oh, it's just like squash or tennis, that's fine. They go, oh, yeah, I get it now. And then they start having an awful lot of fun. Um, mm. It's... It is interesting. The last competition Johnny ran that I couldn't attend, sadly, but he did it himself. We wanted 32. We had 27 competitors. Over 20 of them were still there at the end, even though they had lost in the early stages, watching because it was watchable. And that yeah. tells me all I need yeah. to know. That's yeah. Cool. It's watchable. It feels, like feels like a whippy side-by-side side is actually the gun for this. You're not wrong. I know that I... I know that the clay shooters love an OU, but yeah, it's not me. So the, what, the old whip and quick, quick to load as well, aren't they? Quick to the load and an that OU. That is the key. Yeah, yeah. If you're shooting bottom barrel first on an over and under, you are yeah, going to probably lose. You are yeah. in trouble big time. So, yeah, we, amazing. We've got a few things to iron out on it, but it's good fun. The way we end these pods, as you well know, is with our wonderful bit called Desert Island Shooting. One last day. Where would it be? Who would you have with you? Oh, all things available. Time travel's not a problem. What are you doing? This has been quite difficult, actually. Um, you know, going because there's so many, there's so many options now. And do you go historical? Do you go stuff you've not done, or do you try and recreate the stuff you've already done? And what I've gone for is cherry picking some things that I would like to do and some things I've already done. So uh, one of my favorite things to do, my day would start probably at four in the morning. Um, (laughs) And it would include a kayak trip into my favorite marsh. And this is going to be on my own. I'm going to start the day on my own because there is a special, there's a special solitude to sitting in a marsh and watching the the dawn come up, uh, chasing with the dog, with the dog, with the dog, but just me and the dog and the gun and and a kayak, because that's the way I like to do it because I'm weird like that. Um, and watching that dawn and watching the teal and widgeon whisk past you. And it's great fun. So that, that would be the first few hours. Uh, then we paddle back in uh, to start uh, with a drive of driven English partridge uh, with several of my friends. My dad would be on that. Jimmy Goodley would be on that. Uh, John Joe Lars would be on that. Uh, Johnny Carter would be on that. Uh, we've got to have a few of the old faces there. So, yeah, it's it would be it's too much for my two kids, driven English partridge. At this stage, mm. they will they will join me later, um, but certainly uh, a day you know a drive of driven English partridge on one particular estate, and those that know me well know which estate I mean. I'm not going to broadcast it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then from that, we would hop into our time machine, and we would actually it could be a teleportation machine to be honest with you, because it's still the modern day, and we're going up to Scotland, um, and we're going into Dumfries for a couple of drives of uh, woodcock out of the furs with vintage guns. Um, I had an outstanding day there last year, this year, because it was January this year, um, with a friend of mine who kindly invited me up there, and it was brilliant, and I don't think I'll ever shoot a red left and right again, but I managed to get one that day, so that would be Mm -hmm. lovely to recreate. Then we're going to hop into a time machine, and my dad and my two boys and I are going to go back to the caves at Lascaux, in France, where those wall paintings of Mammoth and Plains Game are all painted. But I'm going to go back far enough in time to meet the people who painted it and to join them on a hunt. (laughs) I want to be involved with them on a hunt because their work still exists and I want to be part of that team. 
That's real vintage, wanna, isn't it? I want to be around the campfire with them. It's not shooting, to be honest with you. I don't think we can tell lobbing a spear or pushing a mammoth off a cliff shooting. Tantic. But still, it's a hunt. So great. I'm going to be involved there. Uh, and then we're going to come back around the campfire and we're going to you know, play tunes on mammoth bones. And that's where our music started. And we're going to paint stuff on cave walls because that's where art started. This is the origins of civilization. And I'd like to have a look. Uh, so we're going to hop back in the time machine, come out of that. Uh, and then we're going to go back to Norfolk and shoot one drive on Jimmy's farm. Jimmy Goodley is a, fr- a very old friend of mine. And Mary's drive on his shoot is stunning when it works and the wind's in the right direction. It's a belter. So we're going to do that. Um, probably the same team as we had with the English Partridge there. And I would like both my boys to shoot their first pheasant on that drive because they haven't done so yet. And that's going to be very special for them. And then... Uh, Myself, my dad, my kids are going to hop into our time machine. We're going to go up to Scotland to something that has always fascinated me. Ever since I read Brian Martin's book on the Great Shoots, there is a picture in that book towards the back of, I can't remember which Scottish estate it was included in, of treetop roost shooting pigeons on a platform built Mm -hmm. at the top of the firs. I've never done it. I've always wanted to do it. The family are going. So we're going to get that done. Uh, That is our roost shooting. Then we're going to hop back into our time machine or teleportation instrument, come back to Norfolk, and we're just going to wander the local hedgerows for a month, Jack, to finish off the day. And all of that is going to end up on a plate the day after. Amazing, including including the mammoth. I was about to say, a big plate for the mammoth, yeah. <laughs> we'll take a couple of mammoth steaks, yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. I, I really like that. And I love the ingenuity of going back in time to back then. No one's ever got close to anything like that. (laughs) I put a bit of thought into that one. (laughs) It's such a cool idea. And you're right. It's the start of civilization. um, It is. And the start of everything. Everything stems. Everything stems from the hunt. Our brain capacity of eating meat cooked over a fire. That's the reason we have big brains. It's because they needed feeding with all that protein. And that's where it came from. We weren't eating leaves. We weren't having to spend eight hours digesting it. If we were eating cooked mammoth, we already had an advantage over our chimp cousins. That's where we got that way it came from. The, the only other thing to point out is it's quite cruel on your children for shooting to be ending tomorrow. There's one last day and you're letting them shoot their first pheasant and then ending it. <laughs> Everybody's got to start somewhere. <laughs> and then gonna, they're just going to be for the rest of their life going, oh no. Yeah, but Chris, you've, no, no, no. You've left me the time machine. What do you think I'm going to do with it? (laughs) (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, fine. I haven't thought of the rules that much. (laughs) Um, Very good. Well, Simon, brilliant. Thank you. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Been great fun. It's been really good fun. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. No worries. As per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive highly coveted Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or sharing a forgotten drive with us. Just drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks time with another episode. But until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.